0: Hello and welcome to the EDH RETCAST. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he loves the change from converted mana cost to the term mana value. It's Matt Morgan. So it turns out Albert
3: Einstein was a real person and, and here I always thought he was just a theoretical physicist.
0: <laughs> ooh, well done, Matt. A plus on that. Of, of the dad jokes you done, that one tickles me the most for ooh. I love it. That's saying a lot because I've gotten you good lately. You really have, but I appreciate that one on more than just a making me laugh level. Like, ooh, ooh, that, uh, what a great start. I love it. Anyway, up next, he doesn't love mana value so much as he is a man of value. That's Dana Roach. Um, when we got our first preview card back in 2019, uh, Aeon
1: Engine, Joey did a little preview video for it where it turns out not only did he reveal the card to the world, he correctly predicted universes beyond by mixing in Uno cards with magic. So well played, Joey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ooh, deep cut there, Dana. That is delightful. Anyway, this is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is the best deck-building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for your new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Hey, Dana, what is it that we're talking about this week? Uh, Today,
1: we're going to be talking about the biggest set surges in EDH.
0: That is right. We're looking at the sets that had the biggest impact on Commander about a month after they came out. What were the numbers looking like when those sets came out? How big of an impact did they have on EDH right out the gate? It should be a whole lot of fun. But before we get there, we want to pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast who handle all of the post-production work on our podcast here, making it look as awesome as it does. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. The EDH cast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player.
1: You can send in an entire stack of absolute jank Uh, 10 cent cards at Card Kingdom. Get store credit and do what I do, which is to buy an absolute, uh, stack of janky 10 cent foil cards to put into your decks. (laughs) PCG player also has access to any single at any time, any condition. So, uh, if you are looking for whatever kind of janky card you possibly want, one of our two sponsors will have it. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question. Choose the vendor link down below and doing so supports both the site and the show. And if
3: you would prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We have Patreon tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join the Discord community that we have going or you want to see all the episodes a day early. We have many different levels of whatever goal you're looking to achieve. We even have a special tier for patrons that we're going to give a shout out to every single week. And this week, we want to give a very hearty shout out to Trevor McCarthy. Thank you so much for all of your support for the show. We definitely appreciate it.
0: All right, guys, let's get in to our main topic. And as we do move into this main topic, let's also set some, some ground rules for what it is that we are talking about and what it is that we're not really talking about. To give sort of a timeline for the number of sets that we're going to be looking at for the purposes of figuring out their impact within the one month window when they came out, we are going to draw a line uh, just sort of within the past two years. So back to 2019, starting with War of the Spark, we're not going to go all the way back to alpha. We just want to see Uh, sort of the sets within the past two years because those are definitely the most current ones right now
3: yeah and this count is going to count decks that have been updated as well Um, not just brand new decks that have been built on any of the given sites whether it's architect or moxfield or any of the deck building sites that we do pull from Um, anything can be updated even if it's just a single card the same rule applies to the entire website in general but we're just going to talk about these specific numbers here for the sake of the show
0: Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be a new deck. It can also be an updated deck. Definitely Mm -hmm. a good thing for us to note. Um, We are also, to kind of explain the process a little bit here, what we've done is took a one-month window after each set's release, and then we looked at the total number of decks that were built within that one-month window, and we then kind of compared that to the total number of decks that were built within that window that contain at least one card that came from that set. So if we're talking about specifically Commander Legends, for instance, we'd be looking at the total number of decks that were built after Commander Legends came out, about a month window there, but then also the total number of decks that were built after Commander Legends came out that contain a Commander Legends card. So that is what we're measuring here. We want to see what that percentage difference looks like to see which set had the most impact relative to the huge surge in decks that came out one month after its release. So again, remember, we are talking about deck counts here, not total card counts. That is what we're looking at. And what a figure will do is start from the lowest percentage and move up to the highest. That way we can see which of the sets had the biggest impact on deck building one month after their release.
1: We're also not including reprint-only sets like Double Masters or Mystery Boosters. Since those are entirely reprints, there's a pretty good chance they would wind up with a score of 100% anyway. That's not terribly useful to this
0: conversation. (laughs) yeah yeah we do want to just see the sets that had the um a bunch of new stuff to provide to provide that impact reprints do definitely affect a set's numbers but something that is all reprints it's not really a fair competition so yeah good thing to note there too all right fellas let's get into it we're going to start off with the uh set that had the least impact one month after its release and that turns out to be drum roll please icoria of all things so this is the set that had all of those companions which was a big deal it had all of those mutants it had those ultimatums, all of those. So here's what the numbers kind of break down to. There were over 18,000 decks that were either updated or brand new added to the site in the month after Ikoria came out. But only 7,400 of those decks contained at least one card from Ikoria. So that is a rate of about 40% of the decks built in the month after Ikoria's release contained Ikoria cards. That's where we're starting 40% for Ikoria, which I don't know about you guys, but I feel like that's a lot lower than I expected it to be. I mean, this isn't too surprising just because a lot
3: of the set was like very, very specific and almost parasitic where Mm. if you weren't playing something like a mutate theme deck, a lot of the cards that you might consider putting in probably weren't going to be added anyways or or cycling. So everything was, it was really specific and, and kind of, you needed to be playing on a theme, and so if you weren't playing a theme, Okoria may not have had anything for you.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that I think if you're just thinking in terms of power, Okoria jumps out as being a strong set, but once you kind of drill down, you realize, oh, it is a you know three-color set, which means a lot of the cards didn't really have a chance to even show up in a two-color or a one-color deck, and... You know, things like the ultimatums that are very, very strong also have a really heavy pip count, so maybe they can't show up on a five-color deck where they're difficult to cast. Mm-hmm. So there's just these kind of weird conditions in a lot of the Akoria cards that make them kind of difficult to show up outside a very specific deck.
3: Well, and, and it kind of shows like this, the set maybe didn't make the impact that a lot of people were, were excited to see.
0: Yeah. And I especially love the point that you brought up about them being parasitic. Like, if one... Icoria deck contains a lot of Icoria cards. We're still only counting that as one deck, but one Icoria deck that contains all of the Mutants, for example, that's going to contain a lot of Icoria cards for sure. So that's another thing for us to sort of remember about this set. But yeah, 40%, that's where we're starting. The numbers are going to go up from here. I tell you what, let's move to the next most impactful set. That is Theros Beyond Death. There were, again, about 18,000 decks built in the month after Theros came out, and 11,000, almost 12,000 of them contained a card from Theros Beyond Death. So that puts its number at about 60%. So 60% of the decks built the month after Theros came out contained Theros Beyond Death cards. What a doozy here that is a little bit bigger. There are some cool cards from Theros, like the gods, for example, that could lead to a bit of inclusion. But again, it is still a little bit low compared to some of the other ones that we'll talk about later on.
1: This is an example of where the power kind of makes sense. Generally speaking, I think Theros Beyond Death is considered slightly less powerful than a lot of the sets around it. Um, so while it's easier to put these cards into decks and Ikoria, since a lot of them are one or two colors, they're also a little bit less powerful, I would say, on average than a lot of the cards and sets we're going to see coming up afterwards. So... This one will logically make sense of, of all the sets that are easier to put cards from them into decks. This one's just a little bit weaker.
3: I I also think that like, there's, there's some sort of effect of, if you told people Theros Beyond Death came out in the past two years, you'd probably get a, oh yeah, I guess it did, kind of response. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> I feel like this set, I enjoyed it, but overall, I I think just the the circumstances around the release of the set really downplayed the, the amount of people that were just getting to play with these cards. And so, yeah, yeah, the the numbers do reflect that a little bit.
0: Yeah. But this is still the set that contained some honest bangers. Like it had Thassa's Oracle. It had Nyx bloom ancient, but it is still, you know, the the numbers are a little bit more depressed uh, down in what they could be compared to some of the other stuff that we're going to get to. So let's get to those. Let's uh, keep on going up there, moving on. On here, War of the Spark is next. Surprise, surprise. Um, in the month after War of the Spark was released, there were about 12,000 decks either added to the database or updated within the database, um, and about 7,600 of those contained War of the Spark cards. So the War of the Spark's percentage, it had a 63% rating there. That was about its level of impact. A little bit over half of the decks that were built in the month after War of the Spark contained War of the Spark cards, which I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, no, this is one I thought would perhaps be a little bit bit higher just because this was a set that had all of those planeswalkers you know planeswalkers that are rare planeswalkers that are uncommon um many of which that did you know fairly interesting niche things i thought you would see this just accidentally populate decks enough to kind of over the number so to speak like there are some sets where you expect new decks to wind up with two or three or four cards because there's just so many really good cards I thought this would be kind of the, the go-wide uh, equivalent of a expansion where there was just so many of those Planeswalkers that were useful. You would see decks where someone just included one of them. Um, but that wouldn't well, that being the case. This one is very, very low on our list. So uh, um, my guess would have been very wrong here with, with War of the Spark.
3: Well, and, and when we joke that we say every set since War of the Spark has been War of the Spark, <laughs> like this is... It's kind of true because yep. War of the Spark is third on the list of the all the sets that we have to talk about, and we were extremely excited about War of the Spark when it was coming out. There's mm-hmm. there's some cards we haven't even talked about, like Dovin's Veto is a very very powerful card, uh, Feather. Like there's a lot of just very very powerful effects and in cards in War of the Spark and the numbers as far as adoption rates are only going to get higher moving forward.
0: Yeah uh, this is the set that had finale of devastation. I mean the the Matt Morganist card out there finale of <laughs> devastation.
3: That it's that is pretty high up on the list of Matt Morgany cards. You are, you are 100% correct
0: there. <laughs> All right, let's move now to the next one in line. This is Modern Horizons. About 11,000, sort of, give or take, uh, decks were built in the month after Modern Horizons came out, and 7,300 of those decks contained at least one Modern Horizons card, so its percentage is about 64%, just a little bit higher than War of the Spark. This is, of course, the set that had such amazing cards as, like, the Talismans, for example. We finally completed the Enemy Color Talismans, there was a continuation of the horizon lands in this set so if anything this is one of those sets where i'm like whoa that's not higher yeah and this is also
1: the first set that we're going to talk about here that has a relatively significant amount of reprints in it Mm -hmm. Um, something that should help artificially boost the numbers of a set and it's still quite low on our list which probably means it's realistically much lower in terms of adoption of new cards at the very least.
3: Well, and especially when you consider some of those new cards are the talismans, like everybody was just jonesing to have the enemy color talismans that we finally did get in this set, which they're great. They're played in a healthy amount of cards. But then when you get kind of towards the the outside the the top ten I should say um, that's when the numbers really start to dwindle and yeah I'm kind of surprised to see it this low honestly
1: now I I do think this is one of those sets too where pricing is going to do weird things mm-hmm. like there's some some very good commander cards in this set you know we talked about Urza there's the the force of will kind of equivalent cycle most of which are very good in commander um, the Yawgmoth himself is a really solid card too. But a lot of those were also very expensive cards because they were getting played in other formats, particularly modern. So I think we might see some of that impacting here too, where the price just made people not run cards from the set that they otherwise would have ran
0: because they're good. That's an excellent observation. I really like that. And you mentioned there too, the uh, the reprint sets. The next couple of sets uh, coming here are also ones that contain a big number of reprints, which might be influencing their numbers a little bit. We're gonna start talking about some core sets. So Corset 2020 is next in our list. About 11,000 decks were built in the month after Corset 2020 came out, and just about 7,200 of them contain cards from that Corset. So that gives it about a 65% impact. 65% of the decks built the month after Corset 2020 came out contain at least one card from Corset 2020. But this is again, while it is the set that contains Golos Tireless Pilgrim and Yarok the Desecrated, it is also one that includes a lot of sort of staples among the format that got reprinted here, you know, such as the Temples cycle.
3: I mean, if, if you've seen the, the top commanders of all time, I would guess that 60% of the 65 decks here that were, were built or updated are just Golos decks. I don't <laughs> probably not too far off. Sure. Um, just Golos, the, the how popular that commander got in such a short amount of time is absolutely insane. Um, but I don't think that makes, obviously, the entire impact of the set.
1: Now, I, I do think, though, it's worth noting here that much um, penetration of the format for a core set was something that would have been unheard of, you know, four years, five years ago um, when core sets were very much not built with Commander in mind. There was, you know, I remember going over spoilers for things like M15 and just being like, well, there's two cards I want from this whole set. That's not a thing anymore. When we get these core sets, they are deep in terms of Commander playable cards. So um, the numbers are low, but for a core set, it's a pretty huge improvement compared to where we were not many years ago.
0: There are core sets, core sets post-2019 are like the original, they have the equivalence of some of the original commander precons. Yeah. Like, yes. let's be yeah. real. They have a similar uh, interest and uh, intrigue for us as commander players. That's what core sets are doing nowadays. It's absolutely insane. And in fact, the next one on our list here is another core set, core set 2021, which had a, about a 69% impact, I would say, uh, because it is. About 21,000 decks total, which is a really big surge, I'll actually note. 21,000 decks total were built or updated in the month after Corset 2021 was released. 14,500 of those contained a card from Corset 2021. So again, that gives it that 69% rating, give or take. Um, that's the set that includes Rin and Sari. Some of the shrines were here, so it is a little bit bigger than the corset, But again, it is another core set that still has a lot of really entertaining stuff for us as commander players.
3: Well, th- this set, kind of like what Dana pointed out about Core Set 2020 where it was designed with Commander in mind, this one to me felt even more juice because you had Heroic Intervention, you had Azusa, you had just Mm. all sorts of these awesome reprints and like if you give people a chance to buy $6 Azusas they're probably going to do that. People love playing more lands. Um, People love good protection spells and Heroic Intervention is one of the best. So this set I, I was very excited about. I'm not surprised to see it outpacing the previous years.
1: Yeah, this is a good example of a set where the reprints very much made cards available for players financially in a way that they weren't prior to this. Um, it made it a lot easier to find that heroic intervention for your deck. Absolutely. So, um, even if things like core sets didn't maybe give new cards to established players, these were an absolute boon for newer players who weren't around when heroic intervention was a you know dollar card or something. Um, yeah. These are a big deal, I think, for a lot of new players and even though they're not in the top half of of cards that added things to like Commander, it's really good for the format to have core sets showing up in these numbers at all
0: well Dana you said something there where you were like even if it didn't offer as much to a franchise player I might be misparaphrasing you uh, a little bit there but like this corset, I feel like it did offer a whole lot it to franchise players Com-
1: really. compared to the you know the ones we're going to get into in the next 10 minutes or so it doesn't but yes those are really really extraordinary numbers for a corset set to offer that many commander cards for sure
0: is Are you just trying to... Because this is the set that had Fiery Emancipation in it. Are you just trying to downplay that? Yes, ben I am. Just because, because of that
1: card. <laughs> that, that I now have in three decks, I believe.
0: Yeah, I know. Of all of us, you're the one who's actually playing that card that you weren't as impressed by when it first came out. But you're the only one who's added the, the <laughs> decks of the three of us. And I'm like, it's a good card, man. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, it's fine. Let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to the next one. Um, our next one here is again reprint heavy, but in a new way. This is Jumpstart. Jumpstart month after that, one was uh, after that set was released. Seventeen thousand five hundred decks were either created or updated within that month, and twelve thousand. 1, of them contained cards from Jumpstart, so that puts its rating at seventy two percent. We're talking about the tiny boneses, we're talking about the naths but we're also talking about a lot of reprints in this set too.
1: That number yeah. is quite extraordinary when you think about how difficult Jumpstart was to get in the month after it was released.
3: Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. If if Jumpstart were widely available, like a, a Core Set twenty twenty would have been. I think these numbers would have been significantly higher, especially with all the the new cards that people wanted, but just logistically couldn't get a copy of.
1: Yeah, even for somebody like myself, who who usually is quite impatient to add new cards for decks, it was difficult to get ones from this set. Um, So if if you're somebody who isn't, like, clicking refresh madly on one of our sponsors, Card Kingdom or TCG player, (laughs) trying to find those cards... You just weren't going to be updating your deck, so yeah, I think these numbers are probably artificially depressed compared to what they would have been in a normal year.
0: Well, and especially like that 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 number there, the seventy two percent, like that impact actually kind of really. It hits me in an interesting way. Like I kind of like I have a feeling about that number because the reprints and Jumpstart were stellar. Mm-hmm. They just also weren't as available as they should have been, even in collation uh, to an extent too. But like you had heuristic studies, you had your Oracle of Maldayas. In this set. And so the fact is also that some of the reprints from the set are kind of artificially increasing our numbers at the same time that they are being depressed by the real-world circumstances that surrounded this set's release. But it just, that doesn't undervalue the set at all to me. Like, hearing that 72%, I'm just like, yeah, there were so many good cards that were printed in Jumpstart. I'm It just sort of reveals to me how important a lot of those reprints could have been.
3: Well, and we know Wizards of the Coast listens to us every single week. They never miss an episode. <laughs> so hearing this, hopefully they... they, they hear that and and think that you know or reminded i guess i should say that jumpstart was a great set it was a great idea um hopefully they do it again they're they're doing another modern horizons which is lower on this list and they do love us commander players so hopefully we get a jumpstart 2.0 uh jumpstart boogaloo or whatever they're gonna call it (laughs) Um, but it was a fantastic set and i do hope we see it again
0: me too, me too. All right, let's take a brief pause before we get to the most impactful sets. Let's pause and challenge some stats. It is one of our favorite segments here on the show because there's just so much data on rec. but, you know, we don't always agree with it. Sometimes I think that cards see too much play or maybe too little play. So we like to challenge those stats in this segment. Dana, do you want to start us off with your challenge? What is it this week?
1: Uh, my challenge is a relatively new card, Idol of Oblivion. It's a two-mana artifact that you can tap to draw a card, and you can only activate this ability if you created a token this turn. But that isn't restricted to your turn. You can just tap it at any point in time when you've made a token. Um, you can also spend eight mana to sacrifice it and create a ten, ten colorless Eldrazi token. Um, that's something you kind of do late in the game when you just need a way to win. But this is a really good draw effect in particular in Boros or Mono White or Mono Red decks that, that make tokens. Um, it's only in just under 6,000 decks, and there's a good amount of red and white commanders that just by default, those decks themselves make tokens, let alone what other things in the, the deck that are tying into that strategy. Um, but Zersoff, the Chaos Rider is a mono red commander. Um, only about a third of those decks are running it. God Eternal Aketra is a pretty strong mono white commander mm-hmm. that has the ability to make tokens right into the command, right on the text there only about a third of those decks are running Idol Oblivion. Um, Darien, King of Keldor, same thing, 17% of those decks, and it's a commander that just makes tokens. Uh, I, I would say if you are playing something in, like I said, Boros or Mono Red or Mono White and you're making tokens, this is a really, really strong card. It's very efficient. It's going to put cards into your hand And it's got kind of a win condition baked into the deck late in the game when you just need a body to clock somebody for 10
0: damage, you can do it. Well, Dana, and you mentioning all of those, I'm thinking about commanders that make tokens. Matt, you've got a Valda Keeper of the Flame deck, and that makes a lot of tokens, and they... Hurt me a, a lot, but like that could also be potentially another good example. Do you think i of a little oblivion would be a fun one for Valduk there? Like, I feel like that's a good example.
3: I, I do actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, having an engine card like that at a fairly low CMC and it's just doing things that the, the, the deck's going to do, anyways. Yeah, that that's a really good option. It's a really good thought. Um, I, I like this challenge in its card that I think a lot of players just kind of overlook because they don't think. Well, I'm not in a dedicated token deck. But then, incidentally, you know they're playing a bunch of cards that do make some sort of token. So this is a really good find.
0: And so, Matt, how about you take us to your challenge?
3: Well, my challenge this week comes from a patron of ours who went over to patreoncom EDHretcast and signed up to actually be able to contribute to the challenge stats segment. Every single week. So, Crystal, we appreciate your support. And this week, I really, really am digging your challenge stats that you gave us. Um, so, Crystal pointed out that Stubborn Denial is only played in 44 of the over 2,400 Elsha of the Infinite decks. Now, Elsha of the Infinite is the Just Guy Commander with prowess. You can play cards off the top of your library. It is quite the combo machine, but sometimes you got to protect your combos, and that's what Stubborn Denial does. So Stubborn Denial is just a force spike. It is one blue mana, counter target, non-creature spell, unless they pay one. It doesn't seem that great, but when you consider there's a ferocious clause on there. So if you control a creature that has a power four or greater, uh, which turns into being just as long as Elsha's on the battlefield it just turns into a straight one mana negate which is counter target non-creature spell. It is insanely powerful when you consider that if you have Elsha the Infinite on the battlefield since yes Elsha is a 3-3 but with the prowess trigger when you cast Stubborn Denial Elsha becomes a 4-4 which triggers the Ferocious Claws on Stubborn Denial which makes it a one mana negate. Now negate is already being played in 741 decks that are Elsha the Infinite decks, which for half the mana, you can get the exact same spell as long as your commander's out, which seems like a pretty great upgrade to me. So this is a really solid find. I happen to love Stubborn Denial. So seeing it, or at least another place, that the card could be getting a little more play is always a welcome sight. So good find, Crystal. Definitely, definitely I'm digging this one.
0: That's such a good suggestion. I sometimes take for granted how much I love Stubborn Denial. I I know that people really like Swan Song, but man, Stubborn Denial is easily, has been my favorite counter spell for a really, really long time because I do tend to play a couple of those decks where they get a very naturally very large creature. So I love this as a form of protection. And that is a really good uh, potential oversight on the thing because you see, oh, the three powers. So it might not work with Stubborn Denial, but it totally does. Because of the prowess. So I love this.
1: Yeah.
3: Shu Yun Silent Tempest is another commander that that Stubborn and I was just very, very good in.
1: Well, it's also one of those, those spells where like sometimes you, you think to yourself, well, what if I don't have the creature out to put it over the top to actually make it a hard counter? Then you think about it and go, well. Am I in a position where a counter spell matters at that point anyway? Mm-hmm. Like that's something I found in my Sphinx deck. If I have no Sphinxes in play, I'm probably at a point in the game where me countering a spell isn't going to salvage things.
0: Right. The spells that you want to counter tend to be the ones that would get rid of your four power or greater creature. Exactly. So you save it for exactly that moment. So it's perfect. Ah, I love that one. That's a really, really great one. All right. I'm going to move to my challenge now. I have a card that I think is a little bit overplayed in its commander deck. I'm Looking at the card, Balduvian Rage in Feather the Redeemed decks. Feather, of course, we all know and love, or if you're Dana, hate Feather the Redeemed (laughs) um, because he's a curmudgeon who doesn't like how many cards that this Boros commander can actually draw you. Um, Because Feather can reclaim all of your tiny cantrips that target creatures that you control. Baldivian Rage is supposed to fit into that mold. It is a one-mana instant that says target uh, attacking creature gets plus X plus O until end of turn, and then you'll draw a card at the beginning of the next turn's end step. uh, Next turn's upkeep, excuse me. Um, So it is actually a one-mana instant technically, but it is a X and one-mana, so you can pay X Mana to give your uh, commander a bigger boost if you want to, but that rarely happens. The point of this card is supposed to be that you can attack with something and then you can use the Bulduvian Rage even just for one mana to get that card draw trigger on the next upkeep. This is seen play in about 33% of Feather decks, but I actually don't really... I don't like that restriction on it, because there actually is one here where you have to target an attacking creature. And of course, Feather wants it to be a creature that you control. That attacking thing, there's while it is an instant, you're not getting to take advantage of that multiple times around. And there are plenty of turns, in my experience with Feather, where you actually don't want to attack. You need to leave her back to defend against someone else who's got a really, really big attacker. So this is technically a card draw spell, but it kind of forces your hand in a way that you might not be as comfortable with. I think that 33% is a little bit too high and that you might be better served finding some other options even potentially at sorcery speed that can let you repeatedly draw cards without forcing you to be aggressive in doing so so balduvian rage and feather that is my challenge
3: seems wise somebody who's played the deck a couple times a handful of times (laughs) at twitch.tv slash i think (laughs) we can probably trust your judgment there
0: matt i thought that you were just going to give me grief because i don't like attacking nearly as much as you do so i'm saying remove a card that specifies attacking
3: (laughs) Well, that too. I mean, uh, that too. I mean, it always is fun to to pull a Dana Roach and and use Target Attacking Creature type spells on someone else's attacking creature when it happens to be attacking somebody else. Um, the amount of times Dana's killed somebody with a Berserk because the attacking creature wasn't his own, um, too high. It's good.
0: Too high. <laughs> it 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 is indeed. It is a of a. a, a delightful cruelty, Dana. So thank you for all of those moments. Absolutely. All right, let's get back into our main topic. We left off with jumpstart and our next set in terms of popularity of impact. The next one we're going to talk about. It's Throne of Eldraine. So for Throne of Eldraine, in the month after that set came out, about 12,600 decks total were either updated or created uh, within that one month period after the set, and 10,600 of those decks contained at least one card from Throne of Eldraine. So that puts its number at 84%. That is a 12% jump up from Jumpstart. We're talking about 84%. That is big. That is splashy. We're talking about the set that had, you know, the Kenriths and the Korvolds and the Arcane Signet. Hint, hint, hint. So that number's very, very big.
1: Yeah, not that there aren't a ton of really interesting cards here. I mean, the Great Henge is... Backbreaking. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an insane card. Mystic Sanctuary messed up Eternal formats. Um, you know, there's just so many bombs here. However, I would be curious to see what the stats look like without Arcane Signet mm-hmm. mixed in because it's a mana rock that kind of literally goes in every deck in terms of raw power. I feel like that alone is pretty warping.
3: I mean, this set in general is just... This was when we kind of saw <laughs> right. sixty-card formats and standard start to get a little warped, as in majorly warped. You had stuff like Once Upon a Time, even that was just a, a free spell, and free spells are never broken. Oh my goodness! Um, but you just this set, like it's kind of synonymous with power creep. So the fact that we're we're starting off the second half of the show with Corona of Eldraine, <laughs> like it's a it's a sign of things to come, people. <laughs>
1: Return of the Wild speaker is one of the best Green draw spells ever printed, and it's not the best green draw spell in Throne of, of Eldrain.
0: Uh, here's, here's actually, so I want to go back to the Arcane Signet thing that you mentioned, Dana. Um, remember that the way that Arcane Signet was introduced to the world was in Precondex. Yes. Brawl Precondex. So they were not actually widely accessible. So I would argue that the one month window that we're looking at immediately after Throne of Eldrain came out may not have even been super influenced by by Arcane Signet in the way that it would be nowadays because Arcane Signet was finally reprinted in a bit more accessible uh, mass-release set Commander Legends. Um, so I think that it is actually still not all Arcane Signet's fault there for the 84%.
3: I think it's not it's completely its fault, but it's also imagine what the numbers would have been if Arcane Signet right. were in yeah. the set proper. Oh, um, I think we're, we're talking... We're talking probably like a top two or three set instead of just starting off the second half.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so Matt, as you said, this is definitely a sign of things to come. Let's move on. The next set in line here, one month after its release to measure that percentage, it's actually Kaldheim. So in the one month that Kaldheim has been around, uh, 18,000 decks have been created or updated and 15,705 of those decks have contained cards from Kaldheim. That is a rate of 86%. So all of those new cards, all of those new gods, your Turgrids, your Orvar, your Vorinclexes, your new Pathways, the Snow Duel Lands, Kaldheim is doing business in Commander, even just after one month.
2: We
3: can't even say it's a recency bias because we've had that first full month, the same as every other set. Um, It was... We, we praised the amount of powerful cards in call time. Um, it is not surprising to see this up there. I mean, like you said, there, there's just so many good cards for nearly every deck. You have the pathways. Anytime you have a good rare land cycle, that's going to help the numbers. But then, man, just having the, the dual face cards in general, there's a just lot of just awesome... Moderate upgrades for nearly every deck. Like if you
1: if you have a creature deck, you probably got an upgrade because of changelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is also you know we've looked at one or two of these sets that that came with a couple of those um, commander decks that that oh yeah were primarily reprints. At least for me personally, this was the first set where there were also singles of the couple of new cards in these sets that I wanted for decks. Um, Cosmic Intervention for one that jumps out at me that was a card that I wanted from those pre-cons for a deck and that was a new thing for, for those heavy reprint Pre-cons that we would get two ofs in sets. Caltime also had really solid cards in those as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Pact of the Serpent, the new yep. tribal draw spell from the elf Precon. I love that thing. I'm even yeah. putting that in a deck that isn't specifically tribal. I'm putting it in a token deck because I make a lot of spirits with Least the Reverend, Medium. So I'm just like, this seems like a really great way to draw a bunch of cards. I love that thing.
1: Yeah, th- this is very, this wound up very much being kind of the go wide set in terms of filling slots. There's just a ton of different ways that this managed to put cards
0: into decks moving on now to our next one here is zendikar rising 15,500 decks were created in the month after Zendikar Rising, and 13,600 of them contained cards from Zendikar Rising. That gives it 87% in terms of that impact. Again, this does include the Commander Precons, so we are not just talking about the new Omnath. We're also hitting that new Anuan and Obun Precons too. And, of course, all of those phenomenal MDFC modal double-faced cards, including the lands, including the spells. Lots to unpack here with Zendikar Rising.
3: I mean, it it turns out when you put a regrowth that has the backside to actually be able to be a land um, that's going to get a lot of play. I would venture... Of the 87% adoption rate for the for Zendikar Rising, 86% of it is just from one card. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Maybe. Come
1: on. Well, it, it, we've also talked in the past about how popular as a theme Landfall is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a ton of Landfall decks out there that got cards from this set. And there was a ton of things in this set that would encourage those last... 12% to people who didn't have Landfall decks to make their first one.
0: <laughs> That's definitely true. Uh, i I actually kind of suspected personally when I was like getting all the data stuff together for this, I suspected that Zendikar Rising might be a little bit lower because there is kind of a tribal theme going on in it, especially with rogues going on. But then Landfall is, while a very popular strategy, is still a little bit, it can sometimes be a bit of a parasitic one. So just like we saw with Ikoria, I thought that maybe those cards would all be sort of compounded into the same decks rather than being a big spread, but no, Zendikar Rising is still like it's got a whole bunch of stuff proliferating all across the decks that were being made at that time.
3: It's not proliferating; it's it's putting counters. But <laughs>
0: that that, that was not in spark, the set. Joe, you're though. thinking of War This Park with
1: that one. Come on, <laughs> but I <I'm, laughs> mean, you, give like, you
3: <laughs> think about like Scute Swarm and all these other just great, powerful cards in the set. Like the more you think about, it, you're like, okay, yeah, that card was in the set. Okay, that was in the set too. So like, I I found myself doing that a lot with the new Zendikar
1: set. Well, right. And, you know, you, we talked about early on with Akoria how, you know, some mechanics like, like mutate are a little bit parasitic. You're probably not putting mutate as a mechanic in a deck that isn't really heavily built around mutate. Um, landfall is a thing that is very easy to trigger even if you're not playing a landfall deck. Things like Felidar Retreat, you know, even if you're playing Mono White, you're still playing a land per turn, hopefully, and getting that trigger. And if you're playing something like Selesnia, where you have access to Green's additional ramp, it's not a landfall deck, but you can very often get multiple triggers off that per turn. So it's a mechanic that plays really well in decks that aren't just specifically focused on doing landfall things.
0: I I just need you guys to know since you since you so rudely corrected me earlier I'm I'm going to be proliferating extra poison counters on each of you.
1: No,
3: no, Joey, you're you're wrong again. Um, that's Finn the Fangbearer that has the poison counters. It still doesn't dang it,
0: Matthew. <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm just yeah, when, just when keeping you honest, friend. Oh man! All right, let's move now to our top three. Here we're looking at Commander Twenty Twenty. Seventeen thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven decks total were built. In the month after Commander 2020 was released. And 15,900 of those decks contained at least one card from Commander 2020. So, you know, this is the set that had your Fierce Guardianships, your Deflecting SWATs, but then also those big bangers like Calamex, your Zaxara. That is an 89% inclusion rate within the month after Commander 2020 was released. Holy whoa. It's,
1: it's a set that was also competing for attention with the akori stuff that came out at the exact same time so that i feel like is also challenging those numbers a little bit since people um had a whole lot of cards they had to pick up if they wanted to completely update their decks and it still hit almost 90 percent penetration that is crazy
3: well and the, the the fierce guardianship cycle the the you can cast these spells for free as long as you control your commander. All of those are just extremely powerful, and, and you wanted them in any given deck as long as you're playing those colors because, man, they they were great. They're just insanely powerful, insanely useful. Um, so those, like I would venture, are, are a significant percentage, but then also just there's so many good role players, and if you're building anything kind of on those themes, it wasn't like regular Ikoria where it was almost parasitic, like we said, but it also was just there there were so many just all stars
0: and just haymakers to be played too so moving on to number 2 we have another very commander focused set you might notice that pattern here happening with our top 3 Commander Legends is next. 17,600 decks were built in the month after Commander Legends, and 16,800 of those decks contained Commander Legends cards. So that's a 95% hit rate that we're talking about there. You've got your Obekas, your Oralmies, your AC, the Tyrant of Strait. In this case, we are counting since there were only the two Precons there. Those are combined into the Commander Legends data that we're measuring here. Uh, But then you, of course, had your Hull Breachers, your Opposition Agents, your jeweled lotuses. And as if that all wasn't enough, this is also the set that had all of those new bond land cycle (laughs) finishing itself out too. A lot happening at Commander Legends. 95% you guys. Holy whoa. Like This is a set brewed specifically
1: to hit those numbers. It was engineered to be a commander set with maximum penetration. You know, existing decks wanted to add bond lands. Existing decks wanted to add really good role players like Jessica's Will or Akroma's Will. There was a ton of new commanders to make people want to brew brand new decks. There's bombs like Jeweled Lotus to to push like really aggressive, highly competitive decks over the top. There's a little bit of everything here. No matter how you play or what you do, there was something in Commander Legends to make you pick up singles.
3: Well, and and so we're we're over ninety five percent adoption rate. I would wager the five percent of decks that were updated or created after Commander Legends came out that weren't playing those cards were people like me where they realized, oh, I haven't put my list up online. I better do that. Sure, and they just sure. hadn't updated Commander Legends cards into that deck yet. So it's it's such a high thing. Like you almost have to kind of go out of your way to not be playing some of the new cards or even a lot of the reprints that
0: came in Commander Legends. See, that's this is the set where I'm like, I want to see what these numbers would look like without Arcane Signet. This is the one where I'm like, hmm, what would have happened were Arcane Signet not a thing in this instance? Because Arcane Signet is one of the big reprints from this set.
3: But you also have stuff like Swords to Plowshares and other just very, very powerful cards that qualify as staples of the format that just happen to get reprinted as well. Like, I I think, sure, it would make a, a decent contribution to the number but
0: i don't think it's going to push it down to even third place well and even then like there's a a piece in my brain where i'm just like well doesn't that kind of artificially inflate the numbers because of the reprints i'm just like no the reprints again are really important here the fact that those reprints are so popular and so prolific within our format is the point we want more sets that do that we want more sets that have the reprints to keep those prices down so that we can put them into all of our decks
3: yeah as important as the reprints that you pointed out for jumpstart were um the the same thing applies here for Commander Legends. I, they just knocked it out of the park when it comes to making sure that there are solid reprints that are making things more available for players, but also new and interesting cards uh, that are going to make their way into the format.
0: Mm -hmm. And so, that leaves us with our number one, the most impactful set for the EDH format in the month after it was released. That leaves us with only one more remaining here. It's Commander 2019. 12,700 decks total were built in the month after Commander 2019 was released, and 12,480 of them Contained cards that were printed or reprinted or whatever within Commander 2019. This is the set that had your Kyrix, your dockside extortionists, it had cool commanders like Atla Palani and Miss ANJ Falconwrath. This set had a 97% rate, 97% hit rate for the stuff that was just within this cycle of Commander Precons. Ooh, I I'm I'm blown away that this one beat out Commander Legends.
1: Yeah, this one is shocking. When I think of Commander Legends, I think of those really solid role-player cards that I wound up stuffing three or four of in literally every one of my decks. There's a lot of good cards in Commander 2019, but they, at least mentally for me... I think of commanders first i don't think of those war rooms that i put into every single one or two color deck or that a chroma's will that i stuffed into almost every white deck i have that wants to be attacking Uh, it it feels like a set with a bunch of good commanders and i'm i'm really having a tough time coming up with what that good utility card would be outside of dioxide distortionist which is Insanely broken.
3: Well, and, and one thing that's interesting that I, I kind of noticed was the sample size of Commander 2019 compared to Commander Legends is significantly smaller. Like there's almost a 5,000 deck difference as far as decks that were created or updated. After Commander 2019, compared to the almost 18,000 for Commander Legends. So I think if the the sample size were a little bit larger, I'm curious if the numbers would be a little bit lower as far as cards from Commander 2019 making it into decks right off the bat. I think the the you know the the very very high percentage as far as what we're seeing here that might be just largely due to the new commanders that kind of spawned a lot of decks. I know um, Angie Falconrath was very very popular out of the gates. Um, Carrick, a lot of people were rushing to build those decks. So I think the new commanders might be pushing a lot of the, the the high numbers that we're seeing here.
0: Well, so there is also an important point. Like, There is a reason that so many commander-focused products are also having inflated numbers here too, and that is because Sol Ring appears in rather a number of these. And I feel like I can already hear someone typing in the comments, it's just like, guys, you forgot about Sol Ring. No, we didn't forget about Sol Ring. We're talking about it now. Uh, but like, that is also true of a lot of the other sets that we've talked about too. Kaldheim was much lower on this list. It had a good number, but it also was connected to the data that we got from precons, and soul rings were in those precons too. So soul ring is not 100% the answer here. It is definitely a factor that allowed these to move into the latter half of the show for sure, increase their numbers because soul ring is so omnipresent, command tower is so omnipresent, but that's true for a lot of the sets that we've talked about so far. Soul ring can only pull so much weight and a lot of the other stuff happening in commander 2019 was pulling a lot of the rest of that weight. And that's a really important point for us to hit on here.
3: Well, even if you consider like command tower being in all these sets, Throne of Eldraine was still 12% higher on these, these ratings than Jumpstart. So even if you figure Command Tower occupies 12%, of these of these scores, you know, 97 percent minus 12 is still 85 percent, which is still significantly higher mm-hmm. than Jumpstart. So I, I think, yes, it is playing into the fact that these numbers are higher. But also, if you take Command Tower and I'm guessing Soul Ring out of the equation, these numbers still are going to be significantly higher than the first half of the the sets that we talked about.
0: Yeah, very much. So with all of that, having looked at all of those sets and the crazy impact that so many of these different products had, let's wrap up with some final thoughts about it. And man, Matt, you just hit on something there that... I kind of want to speak to is just that like the numbers are so high. Like we started with like 40%, which is like uh you know, give or take a 40%. I could have totally seen an, a situation where we had done this episode and a lot of the data stuck around the 40-50, maybe 60% mark or something. But no, they reached up into the 70s and the 80s kind of pretty quickly. Like, that is the level of impact that we're seeing from every set as soon as it comes out. Like they're hitting the ground, running. <laughs> we are getting a lot of impact on the decks that we build every time that one of these sets comes out which is probably why it feels a little bit exhausting to keep up with in some ways but also just like Every one of those sets, it just is banger after banger. And it wasn't down in the 40% rate or anything like that. We swiftly got up to like 80% or 90%. Like it was that that is the takeaway for me here is just how very impactful all of these sets were.
3: Well, the sample sizes too that that we saw. I mean, we compared the number one set compared to the number two. And the the growth of the format over the past two years, just with how many decks we're seeing created within the time that a set's coming out is insane. Like there are so many new players for the format and just the way that, you know, wizards of coast is designing cards for those new players. Like it's obviously pulling people into the format, whatever they're doing is, is
1: obviously working. Um, the one thing I'd like to kind of single out here, and I guess statistically, I don't know how we would, we would validate this, but commander legends obviously made a splash, but I have a feeling that's the set that's going to be making a splash the longest time from now. Um, You know, a a lot of these sets were reliant on splashy new commanders to gain penetration. Someone saw this new cool card, wanted to build a deck around it. Those things, I think, do go away eventually or get cycled out. Looking at a lot of these really popular cards from Commander Legends, you know, that land cycle is not going to be phased out of decks anytime soon um things like jessica's will or acroma's will aren't going to be going away anytime soon the court cycle for example they're probably not going to be printing better versions of cards, but the monarchy into the game in that exact way anytime in the near future, you know, I'm a big fan of War Room. I just feel like this is in particular a set filled with a bunch of cards that you're not just trying out. They feel like permanent additions to decks. So uh, I'll be really interested long term to see what the staying power of some of these sets are
0: too. Now, Dana, it's almost like you might be hinting at something else that we want to do with all of the data that we've collected here because, yeah, these were just the one one month windows. That's something we definitely need to hit upon again as we're rounding out the show. This was just the immediate impact, but not all of the sets may have the same longevity. So we are also interested in some potential follow-up show, who knows, in seeing which of the sets had the best sustaining power, uh, staying power over the course of like, yeah, that is something that we might be hinting at for a future show. Who knows? Because yes, there are plenty that could fall off and seeing the steth- the sets that, that don't, could be pretty interesting. I'm excited. Well, guys, now that we've sort of teased out that potential future episode I think it's probably time that we call this episode to a close so thank you guys for joining me and if our listeners want to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all Matt so you can find me on the Twitters at
3: mathemus 55 that's M-A-T-H I-M-U-S 55 and don't forget twitch.tv slash EDH reccast Wednesday evenings we are playing games with guests each and every week this coming week we actually have the one and only the progenitor of the format not progenitus of the format but progenitor hi <laughs>
1: Uh, the Sheldon Mannery. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central, And I am writing articles once a month for EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald. You can also find all of us at patreon.com slash EDH
0: and I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us or some keen insight into the data on EDHRec, you can contact us at edhreckcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone podcast for handling the post-production work on our podcast. And our thanks go out to our sponsors for the show. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHRec, or you can visit cardkingdom.com com slash edhrec to show your support for the show. Listeners, will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember: EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.
2: So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember.